Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, everyone. Really wonderful to see you be together uh, again. Thank you for that encouraging prayer. Uh, if there are any parents that have uh, kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching, we offer that now. It's called Gospel Project. You can head out towards the back. And everybody else will be in uh, Mark chapter 4, finishing out this chapter today. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through this uh, gospel, this account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and uh, we are planning to spend the, the year doing that. The last couple of weeks, we have been covering Mark chapter 4 as there's a collection here of Jesus' teachings, and we've seen Jesus teaching powerfully about the kingdom. Here at the end of the chapter and then through chapter 5, we'll move from Jesus speaking about the kingdom to Jesus demonstrating the kingdom with His actions. We'll see over the next three sermons that Jesus has unique authority in both word and deed. To give you a preview a little bit of what's to come, on Friday we're going to stay in this series and Friday night we'll be seeing Uh, what Jesus has victory over or is Lord over, and then on Easter Sunday, we'll stay also in series and think about Jesus' power as demonstrated in um, healing disease and in bringing someone back from the dead. So it should be an interesting uh, way of considering the meaning of Easter. Watch for both today and then those next two uh, messages, what these passages teach us or demonstrate about Jesus's identity. The reason that's so important is that we want to always be considering and encouraging others to consider, is Jesus who He says He is? In fact, I would want to encourage you this morning, if you've never answered that question, to pay careful attention this morning as Jesus' actions reveal who He is, because there really is no more important question you'll ever ask than that one. Is Jesus who He says He is? Based on, very likely, the Apostle Peter's eyewitness testimony, Mark records for us this morning, here at the end of Mark 4, a particular story that reveals an incredibly critical aspect of Jesus's personhood or His character. So with that in mind, look with me if you would, it's starting in verse 35. It says, "'On that day, when evening had come, He,' that's Jesus, said to them," that's the disciples, "'Let us cross to the other side.'" He's referring to a large lake called the Sea of Galilee. "'And leaving the crowd, they took Him with them in the boat, just as He was.'" And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. That does not sound good, right? Um, After a strenuous day of teaching on the kingdom of God, Jesus and his disciples headed out across the Sea of Galilee. If you were to pull up uh, Google and look for a satellite image of this area, you could very easily see it and get some kind of sense of what's being described. 
This large body of water plays a prominent role in all of the Gospels because so much of Jesus' ministry occurred uh, near or on the shore or on the water of this large lake. But none of those stories in the Gospels are more memorable than the one we'll encounter today. This is a key moment in the Gospels. Their intention was to break free from the crowds that had been pressing in on Jesus. Imagine hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all wanting something from you. That's what Jesus at this point in His life was experiencing. And they wanted to cross over to the other side of the lake. And we'll see in the next several passages that the reason that's significant is on one side of the Sea of Galilee were mostly Jewish areas, but on the other side were mostly Gentile areas. So Jesus wanted to go to the Gentile areas to preach the gospel there too. But very quickly, something interrupted their plan for a nice, casual, easy stroll across the lake for the evening. You see, a storm blew in, and this quiet gliding across the water morphed into a terrifying, perhaps death-inducing experience. Now, um, I'm not sure you do this, but... Even after all these years of being a Christian, there are sometimes I come across stories in the Bible and they just strike me on first reading a little bit like my grandpa used to talk. That is, the story gets better every time he tells it because it becomes more and more and more fanciful. Doesn't this feel that way a little bit? That the disciples would start across the lake and then out of nowhere, there's this terrifying storm. It can feel that way. And if it doesn't strike you that way, then, friends, you have friends and family members who who don't believe that the Scripture is truthful in all its words. And so the story would strike them that way, perhaps. So if you learn a little bit of geography, though, you can see how this would happen. And I'm sure that's why you came today. I've got geographical questions about the Bible, but give me just a moment to tell you because it helps explain why this story isn't that. It's not my grandpa. This uh, lake, this large lake, sits uh, in nestled very low with large hills or small mountains, depending on your perspective, all around it. And in fact, this is the lowest in terms of elevation, freshwater lake in the world. It sits just shy of 700 feet below sea level. And so, if you can imagine the geography, you've got a large mountain just 30 miles north named Mount Hermon, very often has snow on it, and then you have these hills around the Sea of Galilee. So the cold air coming off that mountain in the north with the warm air of the lake sitting so low, we know today, well, that causes those two forces colliding cause storms. And then the hills would sort of serve like a funnel, creating what would be very often frequent, terrible, significant storms. That's apparently what happened on this day. 
The whole area would serve as like a tinderbox for terrible storms. We here don't really have any idea what that's like. None of us ever watch the weather. Why? Well, you got two choices, hot or hotter. (laughs) So why bother watching it? But here, it would have changed life circumstances very, very, very quickly. Uh, My family, uh, 14 years ago, moved here from Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, everybody talks about the weather. There are three sports in Oklahoma, football, eating, and watching the weather. It changes on a dime there, and that's how it was in this area. Now, um, have you ever been out in the ocean or on a large lake and gotten seasick? How many of you? Just out of curiosity. All right. That is a horrible feeling, isn't it? I think it's like death and then seasickness. (laughs) It is absolutely terrible. So imagine the worst storm you can possibly imagine. The waves knock against the boat with tremendous force, so much so that people are falling down on the ground. It's raining so hard that if you hold your hand out in front of your face, you can't see it. The wind is making it impossible to even hang on to the side of the boat. And so you're just being tossed about. But the most serious thing is right there in the passage. These boats, uh, one was discovered only a few decades ago, that would have been present at the time of Jesus. It had sunk down in the mud in the water of the Sea of Galilee. And the sides of the boat were only about three feet high. So if you've got a big storm and the water's choppy, what's happening every single time there's a wave? What's going into the boat, right? I was uh, on Thursday, the staff was working through this passage, and um, I told them my very first job in a church was I was a youth um, intern. And uh, my first responsibility that was like a big deal was to be in charge of a guy's trip three hours away to a river. And we were going to spend a day canoeing. So we drove in, we set up camp in, in an area that wasn't a campground, we just were hanging out by the shore of this river. And then a storm came in that night, and it rained and rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. It was terrible. And finally, after three or four hours of this, I said to the other guy who was with me, "Um, maybe we should see if the river's getting closer, because we probably want to go home with the same amount of kids as we came with. (laughs) So we flipped the lights on, and it had... uh, come toward the van so much so that we couldn't stay where we were any longer. It moved in about 15 feet. And so we had driven two or three miles off of the main road. And so our plan was to drive back to that paved road and spend the rest of the night there. So I was in the lead van. It was about a 15-passenger van full, full of junior hires. So we're driving in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden I turn around a corner 
and instantly everything goes pitch dark. And then I realize, oh, it's because the headlights are underwater. So apparently the river had risen so much that then this tributary came in a lower region and it was just like another little river. And then my ankles started getting wet. So I rolled the window down and the water was just below the top uh, of the door right before the, uh, where the window goes in. And so um, I, was, I was 19. And I had no idea what to do, frankly. Um, all I could think of was, we got to get the water out because pretty quickly it's now up over my ankles. And all I could find was a coffee cup. <laughs> so I'm literally scooping water out like this with a coffee cup in the pitch dark with a van full of kids. That's what the disciples were doing. They were, uh, the best part of that whole story is uh, we eventually got through, but then the van wouldn't work, of course, so we had to leave it there. And come to find out that the, the van we had borrowed, um, I was close friends with this family, and the wife whose van it was had gone out of town with the kids and told the husband, don't let them take the van. <laughs> and it caused like six, $7,000 of damage because everything inside the car got trashed. It was not a good day at that house. Husbands, listen to your wives about their cars. So the disciples have grabbed whatever they can and they're trying to throw out water, but the ratio isn't working. There's much more water coming in than going out, which means what? That boat is going to sink. And the storm is so terrible, almost certainly they have absolutely no idea which way even is land. Four, at least four, of these 12 disciples were fishermen. Very likely their earliest, some of their earliest memories were of going with dad in a boat out on this lake. And yet they're terrified. We're going to die. And imagine that none of the modern conveniences for this kind of moment that we're aware of would have existed. Nobody's got a life jacket. Nobody's got one of those, I don't even know what you call those, those circle things on a rope. Thank you. There's no radio to call for help. There's no smaller little boat they can lower down and get in. They got nothing. Nothing but the storm and no motor to speed to the other side. In an area known for sudden storms, this one must have been particularly horrifying. So that's the circumstance that we're dealing with in this passage. Now, most of us will probably never be in a boat in that kind of circumstance. We live in the desert. But 
metaphorically speaking. Storms are an essential ingredient to spiritual progress. There are things about the Lord and about ourselves that we learn from books. There are things we learn in this kind of setting right now. There are things we jump on YouTube and watch, podcasts we listen to, friends we glean in conversation from. Those are all great and important, but very often they don't actually take root until we're in crises. The most important things that often stick with us are the things we learn in trials, in sufferings, in difficulties. The greatest enemy of spiritual progress is our tendency to be self-reliant. And so, God in His wisdom allows difficulties and crises into our lives because they play a singularly important role in shattering self-sufficiency. We don't realize how much we're reliant on ourselves and not on God until we get into something that we can't seem to solve ourselves, and it hurts. I wonder this morning if you're in the midst of a storm. Perhaps it's financial. It's, it's terrifying to have more bills pouring into your boat than you have the ability to toss back out with your resources. Or maybe it's a relational problem. Maybe somebody you really, really, really care about has given you the stiff arm. Maybe you just got an abysmal medical result. Or maybe your kids are in crises. In a room this size, with this many people, there are very likely dozens of us in the midst of storms. Whatever the storm is, this story has much to teach us about responding to that crisis as suffering bats us about. If the suffering is significant enough and it persists long enough, then usually even people's very sincere in their walks with God will begin to wonder, where is God? I mean, if you pray the same thing over and over and over, asking God for help, and it feels like that prayer doesn't move past the ceiling because the crises continue and you don't have any more internal sense of God's help, then it's incredibly easy to wonder where He is. And if that persist long enough, then you may begin to question His love and His commitment. Let's read on. Verse 38. But He, that's Jesus, was in the stern. Now, what is it with boat people? Why can't they just say front, back, right, left? 
arrogant. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? A lot of funny things here to point out. It's a rather astonishing verse on a couple of different levels. First, Jesus is a good sleeper, (laughs) a serious sleeper. That he could nap through this is remarkable. As you know, Jill and I have uh, two kids, and one of them sleeps very light, and the other one is a Jesus-like sleeper. (laughs) You can grab this child by the leg, shake it, and get absolutely nothing. That's what was going on with Jesus. Why is he so tired? Well, he is fully human. Do you get tired? Of course. Now, why was Jesus so tired on this occasion? Well, remember the story started with three little words, on that day. Well, what day? Well, the day we've just been talking about, as he spent it all day teaching massive crowds of people, again, who all want something from him. They are pressing in on him, demanding from him. He's exhausted. I wonder also, though, if perhaps there's a picture here of what someone in full reliance on God is like in the context of trial. Jesus lived in constant communion with God the Father and God the Spirit, and therefore, this crisis didn't cause him to be in any way concerned. He was at peace. He could rest even in storm. But the disciples, on the other hand, they're frantic. They're panicking. Consider carefully their question, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They are legitimately concerned for their lives. Certainly, if you could rank the worst ways to die, drowning in the middle of a storm would have to be way up there. Like gulping in enough water and being aware that that's happening until you die, that'd be absolutely horrible. Now, this is a bit technical, but hang with me a minute, because I think... Uh, the way this question is translated may not be the clearest way to help us understand the, the tone of their question. Mark wrote his gospel in, in what was called Koine Greek. It was, the, it was the English of the day, the common language. And in Greek, there's a way to write a question in which you don't uh, assume any particular kind of answer. It's just a a, a normal, everyday question. There's another way you can write a question in such a way that you're, you're implying that you assume the answer to the question is yes. There's another way you can write the question and assume the answer is no. And all of those are open to you. This one 
assumes the answer is yes. But it doesn't really sound that way, the way it's written. So, really their question would have been something closer to this. Teacher, you care we're perishing, don't you? Do you hear the difference? The disciples assumed Jesus cared for them. I mean, they'd given up their lives to wander around following Him. But Jesus' lack of observable action, I mean, He's asleep, and the presence of their fear, those two things combined to begin to leave them doubting. I think that's so often what happens to us. It appears to us God's not doing anything. And we have some very significant thing we're in, in which a normal human response to it would be fear. Those two things combined, over time, begin to take people of sincere faith and slowly grind it down in which there's very serious doubt. Friend, if you've not been there, don't turn your nose on those of us who have, because you'll likely end up there. And sometimes we think of faith like a light switch, like it's either on or off, but it's more like a dimmer, isn't it? I mean, they could have 100% confidence in Jesus, but in this circumstance, they've be, it's now 75%. And there's 25% of question. Jesus, you care, don't you? And over time, that 25%, if unchecked, gets like miracle growth sprayed on it by the crises. And it can become 50, 60, 70%. Do you ever wonder if God cares. Do you ever wonder if God cares about the thing that you're in, about the prayers that you're praying? When the diagnosis doesn't change, when the grade, despite your hard work, doesn't improve, when she doesn't say yes, When the anxiety doesn't lift, when the conflict doesn't resolve, do you begin to question if Jesus is serious when He says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Beloved, what we believe about God has enormous ramifications on every day of our lives. But that is especially true when we're in storms. Let's see how Jesus responds as He uh, emerges from His monster nap. Verse 39, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. And He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? If 
If we had the ability to pick the top 10 moments recorded in the Bible, we would like to jump in our time machine and go back and be present for. I think this one would have to be on the list. I mean, if you've spent much time on the water and done so when there's a storm, then you know how amazing this story is. Because you might be able to say, like a real skeptic might say, well, storms can resolve and evaporate very quickly. Okay. But the water, in a storm, even after the storm's gone, long after the storm's gone, hours, the water is still choppy. And now, in an instant, the water's like glass. There is no explanation for that, except for the one we're about to talk about. Groggy, maybe rubbing the eye boogers out, Jesus says, stop, be quiet, be still, and the storm simply obeys. Verse 37 stated that there was a great windstorm. Two verses later, we're told there was great calm. Now, how's that possible? Well, Jesus has authority over nature. This is the one who created the world, the one who sustains it, the one who can start and stop anything he wants. Jesus is Lord of the storm. He's king of the cosmos. He's master over nature. What do those things tell us? They tell us He's God in the flesh. If you have uh, friends who are Mormon or uh, Muslim in particular, now there's other religions that this is true, but if I highlight those two in particular, if you get into conversations with that friend about what they believe about Jesus. They will tell you, I believe in Jesus. But they'll also say Jesus is not divine in the way that we say as Christians, Jesus is God. And maybe you've even heard this. Well, the New Testament never says Jesus is God. Have you heard that from somebody? Now, it's true that nowhere can we turn to a verse that says those three words, Jesus is God. But all over the Bible are the markers of Jesus' divinity. And in this story, it's incredibly clear that Jesus is simultaneously 100% full man. How do we know that from this story? Well, he's sacked out. But he's also 100% God. How do we see that? Well, 
Your words may accomplish a lot, but they don't accomplish anything like that. The quieting of a storm. Jesus is God. Now, the disciples would have had some sense of this because they knew from their Old Testament that the one who controls the weather is God. Let me show you two prominent passages in the Old Testament that tell us this. You'll see it up on the screens here. Psalm chapter 89 says this, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or a little bit later in the same book, Psalm 107, some went down to the ships to the sea in ships. Doing business on great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind. He lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Who is it that controls the storm? It's God. So Jesus, in standing tired, and yet in that tiredness, as fully God, He's able to simply speak words and still the storm. Let's think closely together about what this episode would have meant for the disciples. Now, they were afraid, and understandably so. The natural reaction to a terrifying near-death experience in a fallen world is fear. If you've ever been in a circumstance in which you legitimately thought you could die, that changes you for the rest of your life. That's the kind of moment the disciples were in. Death by drowning was a very real possibility. And church... God makes no promises, regardless of how deep and wide your faith is, that you will not encounter storms. And in fact, He makes no promises that one of those storms eventually won't be tragic, life-ending. In fact, if Jesus doesn't return... Eventually, all of us, every single one, will encounter a storm that results in the end of our lives. If you're not killed by some crazy driver while you're on a bike, in a car accident, or by some disease, then you will just gradually rot. That's what happens to us, all of us. 
Storms come. This is part of life in this broken world. Sometimes when a storm comes, we pray, God, help! And that help comes in the form of a resolution, a stopping of the storm. Sometimes we pray, God, help! And the resolution comes by God getting us through the storm. Sometimes we say, God, help! And the resolution comes in the conclusion of our lives. But in every circumstance, it's not as though God doesn't hear and God doesn't respond. He does. Jesus told us in the world, we will have, if you know the verse, trouble. Why are we still surprised? In the last several days, we've seen some horrific images coming out of the atrocities in Ukraine. It's not as though this war is somehow worse than previous ones. It's not. But never before has there been this worldwide ability. I mean, we were close to this when the U.S. first invaded Iraq. But now it's, it's real time. We're seeing people in the, the most unimaginable, horrific circumstances, live or immediately after. People who are apparently riding their bikes down the street and mowed down. So many people killed that the Russians dug mass graves to dump them in. It's absolutely horrible. In the world, we will have trouble. And if you look at history, in some ways it's more common that that kind of war would be going on than it not Human beings are incredibly cruel to each other. God has not promised the absence of storms. Then, if that's true, I wonder this morning if we could ask some questions. Look at what Jesus said to the disciples. Verse 40, why are you so afraid? Imagine what, from what we know about Peter, imagine what he may have thought in reaction to that question. Like, Jesus, are you kidding me? Why did Jesus ask that question? Why did He follow it up with, have you still no faith? The word afraid here is best understood as referring to something that's cowardly 
or lacking confidence. Disciples, why are you letting this storm create a sense of cowardness within you? Have you still no faith? Now, the thing I find so interesting about this is that Jesus believed that their lack of confidence in the midst of the crisis was in some way related to a lack of faith. Now, why is that? If God doesn't promise an absence of storms, why is it that fear is not entirely appropriate, even natural, expected? And why does that have anything to do with faith? Or if I put that a different way, if God unilaterally promised that no Christian would ever drown, then parents, there's no need to spend money on teaching your kids to how to swim. Just toss them in. But God doesn't promise that, obviously. Then what does that have to do with a lack of faith? Well, it's because fear stems from a deficient view of God. Fear has roots down in the soil of lackluster trust. Fear is present only when we forget who God is and what He has promised. In an ultimate sense, the only way to trump fear is with a greater fear. Now, I know that's counterintuitive, but it's right here in this passage. What's the disciples' initial problem? They're afraid. But how does the story end? with a greater fear. And that's the way we find this working throughout the Bible. Do you know the most frequent command in the Scriptures? Don't be afraid. Do you know the greatest promise in the Bible? I will be with you. God knows how prone we are to fear. And so, That's why we're told so many times over and over and over and over and over that we're to live with an awe, a a reverence, an overwhelming respect toward God. Because the only way to not fear is to have a greater fear, an awe of God. If we're filled with the conviction that God has the power to still every storm, and that God has secured our eternity. If death is not a cause of legitimate fear in the Christian, because God holds us, then whether God chooses to still the storm, to get us through the storm, or for the storm to take us, becomes not a big deal. If we're filled with the awe and respect of God, then we'll be stable and steady with confidence in God, able to trust Him, irrespective of the circumstance. The only way to trump fear is with a greater fear. When we rightly remember who Jesus is, the awe of Him pushes out the fear of lesser things. Think back with me for a moment to that scripture verse we read that Austin led us in. John chapter 14. This is Jesus speaking to the same group of people right 
close to the time before he would be killed. It says this, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Storms may rage, the wind may blow, the waves may threaten to sink us. But Christian, because of who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you, you have a permanent state of peace with God. No storm can disrupt it. Therefore, fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. When we rightly remember who He is, when we rightly stand in awe of Him, we will get through every storm, regardless of how God gets us through it. It's quite a story, isn't it? I pray it's been an encouragement to you today. Will you stand with me? And let's close in prayer. Fathers, I've prepared this week, I've thought a lot about the song that says, I'll praise you in the storm, and I will lift my hand. Because of who you are, no matter where I am. Father, thank you for the reminder today about who you are. I pray for brothers and sisters who are in the midst of stormy season, that you, God, would choose in your graciousness and mercy to quiet that storm, to say to it, peace, be still. You can do that. We've seen here in the text that you do that. I pray you'd do it again. And Lord, if your plan is not to quiet that storm in some kind of immediate way, then would you preserve your people through that storm? Would you help us to be a community of faith that know each other well enough to know when those storms exist and to love each other enough to be present with each other in storms? And oftentimes the thing that's most needed is not some counsel about how to deal with the storm, but rather just the ministry of presence, the holding hands and weeping together. May we love each other like that. And God, help us to be a people who understand that when we feel afraid, what we ought to do is not play whack-a-mole with that fear but rather to nurture in awe an appropriate perspective of who you are. Minister to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.